From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Farming and forests are huge parts of Colorado's identity. Both fall under the purview of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. We'll hear from the new Ag Secretary, Tom Vilsack, who had the job under President Obama. For a time, he also advised CSU on food and water issues. How Vilsack plans to address climate change, spotty rural broadband, and the China trade war. Then, for a Denver woman, gun violence reverberates 40-plus years later. We had plans. You know, we were going to do things. I can't even tell you what a good kid he was, what a great person he was. And we add to our pandemic playlist. DJs around the state share music that's helped them through. This time, country. Someday we aren't six feet apart. Every day on CPR News, you hear stories that transport you out of your world and help you understand the lives of others all across the state and beyond. Hi, I'm Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. Colorado Public Radio brings you impactful journalism that's only possible because you value and support it. You rely on CPR News to keep you informed. Please support this vital service by donating at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Farming, ranching, and forests, all part of Colorado's identity and all fall under the purview of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. President Biden's pick to lead the Ag Department as climate change transforms fields and forests is Tom Vilsack, a name that may be familiar to you. Vilsack had the job before under President Obama, and he was a special advisor to Colorado State University on food and water. And Secretary Vilsack, welcome back. Oh, it's good to be back. Thanks. One of the issues the pandemic has really spotlighted is rural broadband access. And so the USDA plans to make more investments there. Can you give us examples of why fast Internet is an agricultural issue at heart? Well, we're excited about the opportunities that the uh, the American Jobs Plan has for expanding broadband to even the most remote areas. Uh, farmers are very interested in uh, utilizing uh, uh, inputs wisely. Uh, it's called precision agriculture. Uh, each acre of ground is different. Uh, the more you know about each acre, the better you can be in terms of the stewardship responsibilities you have. And so broadband basically provides you the ability to access information and data uh, from your tractor, from your combine, from other sources uh, that enables you to have a better understanding of precisely how best to farm that acre. Secondly, uh, it also gives you access, broadband gives you access to real-time market information, which allows you to make uh, difficult and sometimes timely decisions about when to sell uh, and when to purchase. Uh, so it's, in, it's an important consideration from a marketing perspective. And income perspective as well. So this is fundamentally about a farmer's bottom line. You know, I think in 2021, there are probably city folk listening, thinking really there are places in this country that simply do not have that sort of access. This is an urgent problem in some parts of rural America. Well, it's, uh, (laughs) it is a a very deep concern. And the COVID situation has underscored the reliance that we have. Uh, Rural schools have found it difficult uh, for their students to have access to the information uh, when sh- schools had to be shut down. We, we obviously have to expand access to health care. 
uh, in creative ways. Uh, not every county has a hospital. Uh, not every uh, city has a clinic. Uh, so the ability to expand telehealth, uh, certainly important. Mental health services, critically important during a very difficult time uh, economically and from a, a healthcare standpoint. So the $100 billion that is uh, allocated and outlined in the uh, American Jobs Plan would be designed to basically finally get to a point where everyone would not only have access to broadband, but, but high-speed access. Uh, we can't have a digital divide here where uh, I have the ability to get information quickly and you have uh, dial-up speed uh, in a remote community. We, we need to make sure that this is treated just in the same way we treated rural electrification, where everybody has access uh, to, uh, to electricity. Comparing it to rural electrification, and um, it's fascinating to hear you draw the line there between the needs of farmers in the fields, for instance, but also their health care needs in these rural places. So um, of the American Rescue Plan, I want to ask you, this was signed in March by the president, it included debt relief to, quote, socially disadvantaged farmers. Whom does that describe and why do they need debt relief? Well, the law is very clear about who's included in the socially disadvantaged farm, which is tied to a definition uh, from a 1990 law and essentially uh, deals with those who have been discriminated against by virtue of race or ethnicity. Uh, and so as a result, you're dealing with black African-American farmers, you're dealing with Hispanic farmers, uh, you're dealing with Native American farmers. Uh, these individuals and these farmers were discriminated against uh, for an extended period of time by the Department of Agriculture, which meant that they didn't have access to loans or when they got loans, they got them late or they got them at an interest rate that was higher or their costs were, were, were higher. As a result, they didn't have the ability to grow, expand and to fully utilize the services and uh, uh, programs available for USDA uh, throughout the last 20, 30 years. Uh, we've, we have reimbursed people for the actual specific acts of discrimination in a number of uh, class action settlements. Uh, settlements that took place during the Obama administration. What we haven't dealt with was the cumulative effect, that gap that now exists between those who had full access to all of USDA programs for that period of time and those who did not. And so this bill, uh, this provision in the American Rescue Plan is designed to provide debt relief as a way of responding to the cumulative effect of discrimination and also to recognize that in previous COVID relief packages, white farmers received uh, anywhere from 95 to 99 percent of the uh, nearly 30 billion dollars that was uh, paid out in those uh, previous COVID relief packages. Just to give you a sense of this, the magnitude of the difference, uh, if you take a look at those uh, producers who have self-identified, uh, our forms allow you to self-identify whether you're white or uh, African-American or whatever. Uh, about 25% of the people that responded to COVID, that, that received COVID payments, self-identified as one category or another. Of that 25%, uh, black farmers received a little over $20 million of assistance and help, while white farmers received uh, close to $6 billion wow. in help and assistance. So th this, this pr proposal is designed in part to respond to that gap uh, in terms of relief and assistance and also the, uh, the cumulative effect of discrimination. Cumulative effect, that is, there are immediate uh, instances of this discrepancy of this gap, but there are also historical examples. So this goes back uh, certainly much further than the pandemic. I'd like to talk about climate change, Secretary Vilsack. Last year, Colorado saw the biggest wildfire in its recorded history, consuming uh, just vast acreages. Heading into summer, how can the Forest Service, which of course falls under USDA, help Western states especially 
where there's so much federal land that can burn? Well, the key here is having resources, significant resources, behind an effort to properly maintain our force. Um, the reality is that we've not invested what we need to invest uh, to, to have proper force management. And the result is that there's been a hazardous fuel buildup over decades, uh, which is now causing these horrific fires. Uh, that's why it's important. I know Senator Bennett and others have proposed a significant investment. And I think you're going to see from uh, both the American Jobs Plan uh, and the, the budget that President Biden is going to submit, you're going to see increased investment uh, in wildland uh, maintenance, fire maintenance, uh, over the course of the next several years, which is going to begin the process uh, of putting us in a better spot. Look, we can do everything possible that the president uh, wants done to, to get to zero emission agriculture by the year 2050, but all of that could be wiped out by not properly maintaining our force and having these fires continue at the rate and the intensity that we've seen recently. So what, it is time for us to get serious about this. What does it mean to manage a forest? What does that look like on the ground? Is that logging? Is that prescribed burns? Practically, what would additional dollars be spent on? It's a combination of things. It's reforestation. Uh, it's cleaning out uh, the hazardous debris uh, that has accumulated over time. Uh, it's, in some cases, a prescribed burn. It's a, it's a combination of of efforts by the Forest Service based on the science, based on the uh, on the particular forest in, in question, uh, and its needs uh, to essentially reduce the risk of, uh, of these horrific forest fires. Uh, and to make sure that as well that the communities that are in and around and dispersed throughout these forested areas are also protected uh, again, as best they can be against uh, a fire that gets out of control. And you see this as just being an area of really underinvestment. Do I hear do I hear you right? Well, there's no, no there's no question about that. There's absolutely no question about it. I mean, you're, you 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 need billions of dollars a year uh, to do the job right. Uh, during the Obama administration, we encouraged uh, Congress to pass a, a fire fix, which would have allowed us to have access to additional resources. It was not done until President Trump became president, but unfortunately, uh, it was not utilized as effectively during the Trump administration. So the expectation and anticipation is that we will use those additional resources that will now be available, but, but there needs to be significant resources added on top of that uh, because of the accumulation uh, of so much hazardous fuel uh, uh, in, the, in the past several decades. I mean, it's, it's not a, a situation that, was, that, that occurred overnight. And it's not a situation that will necessarily be solved overnight, but we need to make aggressive steps now. You mentioned the Trump administration, and uh, during uh, that administration, the federal government imposed tariffs on goods imported from China, which led China to impose its own tariffs on goods from the U.S., and this led to a huge squeeze on U.S. agriculture. Will this trade war continue much further into the Biden administration? Well, under the phase one trade agreement, China has increased significantly its purchases and it is now pretty much at the level they were in before the, pan before the pandemic and before the trade war. Uh, so, all, uh, so all of that is good, but it's a complicated relationship we have with China. In some cases, it's complementary. In some cases, it's collaborative. In some cases, it's, it's a matter of conflict and competition. Uh, the concern uh, is that we, that we maintain that balance so that whatever happens in the South China Sea or with reference to Taiwan or Hong Kong or protection of minorities in China, uh, that, it, that it is done in a way that allows the cooperative aspect of our relationship to continue so that we continue to have 
the ability to to, uh, to to sell product to China. I would say that the lesson to be learned from all of this is two two lessons. One, if you're going to do something against China, you don't do it alone. You do it with the rest of the world. And the Biden administration is now in the process of putting together the alliances that should have been put together before to, to confront uh, China as a as a global community. And then secondly, we have to diversify in agriculture our, our markets, that we can't be overly dependent on a single market uh, to be able to uh, support exports. We need to figure out how to get a deeper presence in more markets across the world uh, so we're not as reliant on China as we have been. Have farmers and ranchers made up for the losses caused by that trade war? Uh, no. Uh, uh, it's going to take a while for them to make up for the losses. They are just back to where they were in 2017 before the trade war in terms of, uh, of a level of exports and a level of sales. Level of sales. Uh, it's going to take some time for those sales to increase, for us to continue to expand opportunity on the export side, for them to, in essence, make up for the lost income they suffered during the first two or three years of that trade uh, dispute. Meanwhile, there is some concern among producers that the Biden administration will mean a lot of layers of bureaucracy that could make their jobs harder. Uh, High-profile outbreaks of E. coli led your former boss, President Obama, to sign the Food Safety and Modernization Act, uh, which allows the FDA to regulate how food is grown, harvested, processed. President Trump indefinitely delayed enforcement. Uh, What do you say to those who worry that something like this might force smaller operations to close? Do you share that fear, first off? Well, not necessarily, because there are, uh, the the law doesn't necessarily apply to every farming operation. There are smaller operations that don't necessarily have to comply with the full range of uh, requirements under the Food Safety Modernization Act. I would say the worst thing that can happen to a farmer is for there to be a, a food safety outbreak because it not only impacts and affects the particular farmer, uh, that may have provided unsafe uh, a product, but it also affects the entire industry and the entire market. We have seen uh, a number of fruits and vegetables be impacted by food, uh, a food uh, challenge, a food problem, a food safety issue, uh, and we've seen the market. Uh, it takes quite some time for it to rebound. Uh, so I think it's in everyone's best interest to make sure that we have safe food, and it's in everybody's interest that we also make sure we have nutritious food as well available uh, to all of the people in this country. In Colorado, you need look no further than cantaloupe uh, for instances of how foodborne outbreaks can affect an industry. Um, but you, you do not find that law to be overly cumbersome in just the last few seconds. I, I don't think so. I think there's, uh, there are plenty of ways in which uh, assistance is being provided for folks to be able to comply with the law. And again, it's in their best long-term interest to make sure that the food that is provided to American families is safe uh, and the food that we export uh, to other families around the world is safe. Secretary, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for it. Thank you. Tom Vilsack, Secretary of Agriculture. He served in the same role under President Obama. And for years, Vilsack was an advisor on food and water to Colorado State University. Earlier this week, we did a deep dive into Colorado's pandemic economy and what a recovery might look like. An important update now to that series. A brand new survey shows that business leaders here are overwhelmingly optimistic about the next six months. The University of Colorado released its latest business confidence index Thursday. 
Keep in mind that only a year ago it hit a record low. Now it's reaching toward a record high, says Rich Wabakand at the Leeds School of Business. I was pleased that it was across all categories. The things that are more focused on the individual company, like industry sales and industry profits, those categories were strong in industry uh, hiring expectations and investment expectations. So they're telling us in the next quarter, they expect all of those things to be in positive territory, meaning they're going to invest, they're going to hire, and they expect profits and sales to be strong. So they see the light at the end of the tunnel, many of these businesses. Now, more than half of those surveyed based that optimism on the availability of COVID vaccines and on the easing of restrictions. Brian Lewandowski, also of the Leeds School, emphasized just how hard those restrictions were on tourism, restaurants, restaurants and the arts. As more people are vaccinated, as we reach herd immunity, as the alert levels go down across the Colorado counties and businesses are allowed to reopen, that, that's really where the surge of job growth will come from. It's the, the rehiring of a lot of those workers in those key tourism industries. That's where most jobs have been lost. So that's really the, the greatest potential for adding jobs back and adding jobs back quickly. Still, those polled predicted it'll be next year or the following before the state's unemployment level drops to where it was pre-pandemic. The story now of a name change. Vicki Strong of Denver never felt connected to her middle name, Andrea. So the other day, she got it officially changed. My nephew's name was Michael, and my brother's name was Raymond, so I'm changing my name to Micah Ray. Kind of a combo. Um, And so every time I sign my name, I'm going to think of them very fondly. It is Michael's death that's been weighing on Strong the most lately, at the age of 13, back in 1975. You see, every time there's a high-profile story of gun violence, Vicki Strong thinks of Michael. The attack on the King Supers in Boulder is what prompted her name change. I've been wanting to do it for a long time, but this really cemented it. It really was the impetus for me to finally go down and you have to get an FBI check and a CBI check, but it's, it's all worth it. So what happened to Michael? Vicki told me this story. It begins, coincidentally, at a King Supers, where she was a clerk. This lady walked in, and I was bagging her groceries, and she said, you know, I heard the most awful thing today. I heard on the radio that a 13-year-old boy was shot and killed. And I just said to the lady, I said, I can't even imagine what that family's going through. Right after I had said that, one of my brothers walked in the store, and he said, you have to come home. Uh, I remember riding in the car with my brother and I kept thinking it was my dad or my mom because uh, my dad was 56 when I was born and my mom was 43 and so I kept asking my brother did something happen to dad but when I got home my dad and my mom were there and and then that's when they told me that he had been shot to death it all clicked for me what that woman said to me was really about Michael my nephew She was telling me before I even found out, and I didn't realize it. It was so shocking, and it turned out to be so senseless. Michael was at another kid's house, a house where the adults kept a gun. Vicky thinks there was some intimidation going on, bullying, not just horseplay. And one of the kids Michael was with shot him in what apparently was later ruled an accident. 
this is the thing, you know, about guns and people leaving them in their houses. That man, the father of the one boy, he actually had that gun in a gun case locked up. But the boys had unscrewed the gun safe off the wall and got the gun out of the back of this thing. And, you know, later on, I went into the army. I've, you know, I shot an M16. I, I have no problem with people buying guns for protection, self-protection. But I'm just really adamant about people doing the right things, you know, leaving the safety on, not having ammunition in the gun. The day of the shooting, August 4th, 1975, Vicki Strong was supposed to pick Michael up after work. They were close, more like siblings, she says. And 46 years after his killing, she holds him close to her heart and wonders what a boy she describes as a gentle soul might have become. My nephew and I shared some wonderful things together. I mean, we we had plans. You know, we were going to do things. We were... He was, he was the, I I can't even tell you what a good kid he was, what a great person he was. And, um, and he wouldn't have hurt anybody. And, you know, that brings it back to that store. These people are just going about their day, just living their lives. And somebody decides to snuff them out. And that's how I felt with my nephew. Vicki Micah Ray Strong of Denver reflecting on her own experience with gun violence after the murders of 10 people at a Boulder grocery store. By the way, she wrote a song for Michael called Poetry Man, and she shared a recording she made. Fall, fall, the rain does fall, just like a children's game. Each drop of water takes turns falling down my window pane. His eyes dance from drop to drop, Quick stamps across the leaves Sweeping wisps of water tunes And silence interweaves He was the poetry man And he was the poem Life was just the paper No one really owns him awoke his emotions for the showers were his favorite times he sat for hours painting words while colored rainbows spoke his favorite lines fall fall the rain does fall but he's gone away wind whispers that he's the In public health, the pandemic has been a catalyst for change. Here's CPR's John Daly. Don Comstock thrived as a tenured full professor at the University of Colorado Anschutz in Aurora. She taught. She researched and published peer-reviewed studies on things like concussions and injuries in high school sports. In many ways, it was a dream gig. Then the pandemic hit. I just felt that I had something to offer and I couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore. Comstock jumped out of academia and into the fray as Jefferson County's new public health director. Her move comes at a key time. Her counterparts face threats for their work. Some were even picketed at home. More than 20 in Colorado and 190 nationally have quit 
been fired or will soon leave as the pandemic grinds on. Those facts are not lost on Comstock. I tend to like a challenge, I guess. Last year, as the worst public health crisis in a century hit, Comstock was teaching students the subject that's all about how diseases spread, epidemiology. We were hearing about the first cases in Wuhan, China. We used the data from the different provinces of China to demonstrate how to calculate case fatality rate. She and her students watched slack-jawed as what had been purely theoretical became the real thing. It was an incredibly surreal experience. That's when she decided to make the leap. It just became a growing pull on me, this need to help. I think Don is an excellent public health person who loves public health, loves epidemiology. That's Dr. Mark Johnson, the 30-year veteran Comstock is replacing. He'd spent much of that time dealing with more ordinary things like foodborne illnesses or outbreaks of flu or measles. Then last March, as cases started exploding globally, he told his staff, This is a pandemic and it's going to hit every county in Colorado. Dealing with it meant issuing mask mandates and tough restrictions, like on the number of people who could be indoors in businesses, like gyms and restaurants. That led to tensions, most notably over an anti-mask rally and legal fight. That's not America. Over social distancing requirements with Bandemir Speedway. Hundreds gathered at Bandemir Speedway in Jefferson County tonight in open defiance of public health rules. And Johnson says often local public health leaders had to play bad cop, which drew a backlash. He says, though he never got direct threats. I did get threats. We are watching you. You better watch your back. You're going to lose your job. You better watch your family. You better watch out. We know where you live. Those kinds of things. Law enforcement deemed it credible enough to add patrols around his workplace and parked a police car outside his home. It would be hard to say I wasn't unnerved, but I think it was harder on the family. You begin looking over your shoulder more. You start driving different ways to work. Johnson will now continue to work for the county as its chief medical officer. He says top Jeffco leaders supported his department throughout the pandemic. And Comstock got a clear view of the job since she's also been serving as a member of the county's Board of Health, to which Johnson reported. So she knew the stress we were under and the challenges we were facing. Dr. John Samet, too, thinks Comstock has prepared for the pressures of the job. He heads CU's School of Public Health and leads the state's COVID-19 modeling efforts. He says Comstock's academic background will serve her well in setting local public health policy. I think it's great to see people jump from academia into practice and and back and forth. And Samet says he's seeing another optimistic sign. Rather than being scared off, students are applying in soaring numbers to start careers in public health. We need replacements. We need more leaders. Other local public health leaders say the crisis laid bare many struggles and challenges to improve the health of Coloradans. In Durango, San Juan Basin Public Health Director Leanne Jolon has herself been a target of protesters over public health restrictions. We're happy for the fresh legs and happy to get some subs. (laughs) There's a tremendous amount of work to do in public health in general, regardless of this pandemic. Comstock won high praise from former student Rashank Pakumala. He's a freshman at the University of Colorado, Denver, and took her epidemiology course last fall. After she told students of a job opportunity with the state health department, Pakumala applied 
and got a position as a part-time contact tracer. It really opened my eyes a lot more to the work of public health and how vital it is in our modern-day society. Comstock, too, hopes to communicate to the community how vital that work is. And she says she's ready for this pandemic to wind down so she can set her sights on all the other public health battles. To ensure the air you breathe is clean, the water you drink is safe, the food that you consume is healthy and safe. That work has often gone unseen, unheard, and definitely unsung. But that was before the pandemic struck. I'm John Daly, CPR News. On the same day this week, two former Colorado Supreme Court justices passed away. Mary Malarkey and Gregory Callum Scott were both 77 and both were trailblazers. Malarkey, the first woman on the court and a champion for women's rights and LGBTQ equality. Scott, the first and only black justice in Colorado. Both were appointed by Democratic Governor Roy Romer. And when Scott stepped down from the bench in 2000, Malarkey was chief justice and chaired the commission to find his replacement. I never got the chance to speak with Gregory Kellum Scott, but Mary Malarkey was on the show in 2010. At the time, she was leaving the court after 23 years. Let's listen back. Justice Malarkey, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So what's it like to be retiring after so many years on the bench? Oh, I'm really looking forward to it. I think just like anybody who retires, I will really enjoy the freedom of not having to get up and go to work every day. Yes, but it's, it's not just a, a, a typical day job you've got. True. I mean, do me a favor. I'm not sure how well people know their own state Supreme Court. Tick off for me the variety of issues that you deal with. Anything that can be uh, filed in the state court system can end up in our court eventually. So that would include the whole range of civil and criminal cases. In the civil area, it could be anything from a contract dispute to an appeal from uh, what a a public agency has done. In the criminal area, it's anything from low-level crimes on up to the most serious felonies. In 1994, you were diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis. And and I wonder how you've managed that and managed your duties as Chief Justice. I think dealing with any kind of a chronic disease is is a difficult thing. And, And the unpredictability of a disease like this is something that I had to get used to, and there are a number of coping techniques that I have to employ. Over time, it's been slowly progressive so that today uh, I have to walk with the aid of a walker. So there's no doubt that it takes me longer time to do things. I don't think it's really impacted my work as Chief Justice directly. When you said there were, uh, I guess, kind of modifications you had to make or or coping mechanisms, what's an example of that? For example, I use a dictation program for my computer rather than typing. So what do you see as your greatest contribution as Chief Justice? I think it has been uh, just to help build up the resources for the whole branch, the judicial branch of government. That's what one of my main things has been to secure from the legislature adequate resources so that we can fully staff the courts. We've had in the state a tremendous growth over the last 20 years or so, and I was very concerned that the courts weren't keeping up with that growth so that we could timely handle cases. And we've been successful in in getting increases in the number of judges and other staff to keep up with the population growth. And um, in, in terms of what you've been able to do from the bench, 
in terms of the legal framework of the state, what would you point to? My goal has always been to write for myself opinions that are clear and straightforward and that uh, can give guidance both to the trial court and to the parties in the particular cases. Uh, One of the things I think uh, people may not often recognize is that courts are in the responding position. We can't go out there and and look for cases that we think would be interesting to decide. We're always reacting to uh, deciding the disputes that parties bring to the courts. So we have to act within that framework, that limitation. It sounds like a source of some disappointment in a way for you, that you couldn't, I don't know, do more shopping, case shopping? No, I didn't mean to imply that at all. Okay, okay. That's just the reality of this kind of job. Uh-huh. And I think that's entirely appropriate. We're here to resolve disputes that can't be resolved in any other way. In 1990, you were the deciding vote to uphold the constitutionality of Colorado's death penalty. The man convicted, Gary Lee Davis, is the most recent person to be executed in Colorado. What was the decision you had to make? And was it a difficult one to come to or not? Yes, of course. These are very difficult cases. Their death penalty cases are highly complex. Uh, They're often very emotional in terms of the types of cases that are involved. They're always serious homicide cases. The law uh, is very complex. And in that particular case, the United States Supreme Court had recently come down with a decision that impacted uh, part of the Colorado law. And the question was uh, whether that, uh, the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court had invalidated a particular part of the law, whether that would mean that the death penalty should be overturned in uh, Mr. Davis's case. I mean, in, in that instance, you are making a decision that has a fundamental impact on life But in some ways, it's really, I don't want to say it's about the mechanics of the law, but you're you're considering a much narrower question with an enormous impact, aren't you? Well, that's true, because over the years that the Supreme Court has uh, defined and redefined uh, the requirements for imposition of a death verdict, it has become a very complex set of steps that a state law has to go through, and that's what we were trying to figure out. I wonder this, Justice Malarkey, we spoke with the Attorney General, who has been critical of some of your rulings, including your decision to overturn a lower court ruling. And this had to do with property taxes, uh, which of course fund schools. Uh, They were going to be descending, naturally, and uh, the state wanted to put a freeze on their decline. You said that that freeze was appropriate. And I wonder if you'd tell me just a little bit about that decision for which the court came under some criticism. Well, what we were doing there was construing a statute that had been passed by the General Assembly and signed by the governor. So we were construing a law, and the question was whether that that was consistent with the state constitution. That's right, and, and specifically Tabor, the Taxpayer's Bill of Rights. And what it amounted to was a change in the state law in the way that property taxes had been administered, particularly with respect to the schools. So the choice and the change of law was made by the legislature, and the question was whether they could make that change. And uh, we said that they could, that they had the discretion to decide to make that change in the law. 
Now, the Attorney General has praised you for your Court in the Community program. Uh, This is where you actually heard cases in cities throughout the state instead of hearing all the cases in Denver. Um, Tell me a little bit about the benefit of of doing that, a kind of court court on the go. Well, we have had that uh, program in place. It was in place before I came on the court, so it's probably been in place for about 25 years. We've heard cases all over the state what we do is, they're real cases, they're not mock cases, and we hear them in high school auditoriums. Uh, we also then will typically have lunch with some of the students. The students, uh, for the most part, are able to read the papers that were filed in the case, study the briefs. Sometimes they even have mock arguments in their civics classes or government classes. So my experience is that the uh, students are very well prepared and that they really enjoy it. Whether they like a particular case or not and understand it sort of varies from time to time. And they find some cases much more interesting, as you can imagine, than others. They kind of like car accident cases, for an example, because (laughs) they're learning how to drive and they identify with that type of thing. Yes. It's so human. Sure. Yeah. Is that true for you, too? I mean, I I just imagine that there have to be some cases you identify with more than others. (laughs) Is it true that I'm human? Yes, it is true that I'm human. Uh, Well, I think that uh, that's, sure. There are cases that I may find more interesting than other cases, but that's one of the benefits of having a seven-member court because there's always somebody on our court who finds a case interesting, even if I might say that, that this is not my alley. I want to talk to you about your schooling. My understanding is that your roommate at Harvard Law uh, became a Supreme Court justice in New Mexico. That's that right? right. Will you remind me of her name? Pamela Minsner. Pamela Minsner. And you were among what I imagine to be a, a, a small group of women at Harvard at that time. Well, there were, women were less than 5% of the student body at Harvard Law School and also five, less than 5% of the practicing bar. It's different today, of course. Was that hard then? Well, of course. Uh, as a woman in, uh, among such small numbers, uh, we were very conspicuous. There were 22 women in my class of about 525 students. There were a lot of professors that uh, weren't quite with the idea that women should be admitted to law school. In fact, a couple of them refused to call on women and would only call on women once a year on Ladies' Day when they would only call on women and then ask questions that were obviously uh, intended to show that they didn't take women seriously as students. So uh, the, the next step is that a nominating commission will recommend names to the governor, who will then have a chance to choose your replacement. Um, what, what kind of a person would you like to see chosen? I think it should be someone who is a, a well-educated, has a head, uh, a, has a wide variety of experience in the in the cases as possible, and who is hardworking and uh, collegial. And a woman? Or not important? Well, I, I think that uh, having a woman would be great. Do you have anyone in mind? No, no. I do not. <laughs> Justice Malarkey, thanks so much for your time. Okay. Mary Malarkey speaking with me in 2010 when she stepped down as the longest-serving chief justice on Colorado Supreme Court, the first woman in that role. Malarkey died Wednesday at age 77, the same day as her former colleague, Justice Gregory Kellum Scott, the first African-American on Colorado's high court. He was also 77.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You've been here a long time, and you remember when that giant rectangular apartment building was a block of tiny houses. Or you just got here, and the view from this apartment shows you a whole new city to explore. I'm David Sachs, and it's Map Week at Denverite. One thing we're talking about? Mental maps and how your experience with the city defines how you see development, politics, and the future of our shared space. Denverite, in your inbox and at denverite.com. Powered by Colorado Public Radio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. DJs around the state are sharing music with us that's helped them and their audiences get through the pandemic. Today, Yeah, we like to start your day with lots of music every single day. Nonstop, New Country, 991 Mornings. Hi there, AJ and Max, 99 at 9. That's 99 minutes of nonstop music. Every day we'll get it going. Happens again today, starting at 9. Here's Tennille Arts. I've seen pickup lines and dive bars, strangers slow dance. AJ Vitalio does mornings with New Country 99.1 out of Windsor, Colorado. And he makes me wish Colorado Matters had a choral jingle. Anywho, his first song pick... I'll tell you, man, I'm a big fan of Justin Moore and all the stuff that he does. His latest single, We Didn't Have Much, talks about growing up and, you know, not having you know, all the stuff, all the bells and whistles that, you know, a lot of kids have now and even grownups for that matter. And, you know, we didn't have much, but we had each other and that was enough. There was daddy's clothes but putting that bacon on mama's stove dog. It's always been enough and it always will be enough. That's something that I know for a fact got me through the entire year, my family, because you know, all the time we spent together, all the stuff we did together, all the moments we shared together, the good moments, the great moments, and you know, even the tough moments we've grown through. Uh, and that's what that song is about. Every time I hear it, it hits home and it really gets me a little emotional. I can still hear grandma reading at a red letter book of John. I can still smell coffee in the kitchen. Old Don Williams on. One that kind of takes me back is uh, What's Your Country Song by Thomas Rhett. Talks about a lot of the songs that we grew up with throughout the song. And it kind of just takes you back to like, yeah, you know what? That was my country song when I was 10. You know, that was my country song when I was 15. And kind of goes through a timeline of all these different classic artists and songs. And it brought me back to a lot of neat places in my life. Yeah, what's your country song? Do your exes live in Texas? Are you so lonesome you could cry? Are you heartbroken cause you know that ain't your truck in her drive? Are your friends all in low places underneath the neon moon? Were you already country?
AJ Vitalio of New Country 99.1 hasn't just felt a connection to the music during a difficult year, but also to his listeners. It's been nice talking to them and hearing, you know, some of the things they've been going through and, and just knowing that we as a radio station, as a morning show, uh, we're kind of like their comfort zone. And a lot of times their go to their little escape, you know, when they want to hear their favorite song or if they want to win some prizes. So it's nice to know that we've been able to be a, an outlet for people during this crazy year. Kelsey and Thornton, what you feeling today? What's giving you good vibes? I'm a nurse, and we are getting busy just vaccinating everybody here in Colorado, and we are getting there with getting as many people vaccinated as we can. So things are looking up. I love that. That is such <laughs> a good, good vibes. It really is. And, of course, we want to spread, you know, spread our good vibes out to all you medical workers out there who have done such an incredible job over the past year plus. Thank you so much. Thank you. With AJ Gotta love a little Dolly World there for Throwback Thursday at 99 at 9. 99 minutes commercial free rolls on now with Luke Combs. Sunday morning, man, she woke up fighting mad. Luke Combs is like the Garth Brooks of 2020, 2019. I mean, really for the past couple of years. I mean, the man, everything he touches is, is golden, literally. He's got like 10, 12 number one hits, and he's only been doing this for a few years. Really, anything from Luke Combs. When the dogwoods start to bloom And the crickets hum their tune That's usually about the time That I feel most alone But the news has all been bad And the whole world seems so sad I ain't had much else going on So I sat down and wrote this song I miss my mom, I miss my dad I miss the road, I miss my band Giving hugs and shaking hands It's a mystery, I suppose Just how long this thing goes But there'll be crowds and there'll be shows And there will be light after dark Someday we aren't six And when we're able to draw closer together, Vitalio hopes it actually makes us closer, a sentiment reflected in his final selection. Undivided by Tim McGraw and Tyler Hubbard from uh, Florida Georgia Line. That's been a big song, and that's kind of like my theme song from the past year. You see, Billy got picked on at school for things he couldn't change. He tried his best to play it cool But in the seventh grade You either fit right in or you don't fit That's just the cold hard truth I wish that I'd have been the friend That Billy never knew I think it's time to come together You and I can make a change Maybe we can make a difference Make the world a better place Look around and love somebody We've been hateful long enough Let the good Lord reunite us To this country that loves undivided No matter what we go through No matter, you know, all the craziness that goes in the world At the end of the day, 
we at least need to be cool with each other, be kind with each other, choose our words wisely. And regardless of, you know, what someone looks like or believes, you know, we're all in this thing together and we really do need to be undivided. It's such an important message. And I think the song hits home and I I don't think they could have came out with that at a better time. And when we go learn and try on someone's shoes sometimes, That's right. when we gonna start to see from someone else's eyes, I think it's time to come together. You and I can make a change. Maybe we can make a difference, make the world a better place. You can hear AJ Battaglia weekday mornings with his co-host Max from 5 to 10 on New Country 99.1 in Northern Colorado. We'll add his pandemic song picks to our growing Spotify playlist at CPR.org, alongside recommendations from our colleagues Bruce Trujillo with Indie 1023 and KRCC's Vicki Greger, plus tracks from Kurt Neuswanger, longtime Christian broadcaster on the Western Slope, and Laura Resendez from Spanish-language music station Tigre FM. Thanks to the Colorado Matters team who keep on strumming. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Herbs. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrana. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Oh, yeah.